welcome to Bible Shots, whether you're here with us today in the cathedral or joining us over the internet via Facebook or Zoom. It's wonderful to have you here. My name is Will and I'm part of the Hobart City Bible Forum team. And we're broadcasting to you today from the beautiful St. David's Cathedral in Hobart. City Bible Forum is an organization that seeks to create spaces for people to have discussion and dialogue around the questions of life, faith, and meaning. And today we are concluding our new series of Bible Shots, which is a half hour hit of something stimulating from the Bible. Over the last three weeks, we looked at politics, climate change, and racism. And my colleague at City Bible Forum, Aaron Johnstone, will today be speaking to us about inequality and the Bible. First, let me read to you a short passage from the Bible that might help to set the scene. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Please welcome Aaron. Well, hi everyone, and uh, welcome back to our final week of Bible Shots here in Hobart. As we close out the series, Does Christianity Have a PR Problem? So far we've looked at politics, climate change, racism, and uh, now we'll finally close with inequality, as Wilbur was talking about earlier. Now, it's worth mentioning that we're really only just scratching the surface uh, of these topics. And there's a lot more that could be said about this stuff. Uh, and there's a heap of other topics that we could have done as well, uh, which we, it would have been good to go into uh, to fit with the kind of theme of the series. But uh, for those who have been here for the whole thing, uh, really glad that you have been able to kind of jump on and be a part of it. And uh, especially for those who have been here in person at St. David's as well. It's been great to have you. 
Uh, I hope it's been helpful in allowing us to, to jump into the Bible together and uh, discover new things along with old together. And I hope that the series has been able to show that the Bible can speak into contemporary issues and uh, discussions that are happening in our culture right now. And at City Bible Forum, we want to keep those discussions going. You can join us for the next series of Bible Shots in a few weeks or check out some of our other content online. Uh, we have blogs and podcasts and kind of TEDx-style talks and a lot of other interesting stuff that uh, connects the Christian faith with, the, with uh, the world around us. And of course, if you're enjoying getting into the Bible for the first time, well, then we'd love to invite you to read one of the biographies of Jesus with us. Uh, we'd, we'd love to do that over coffee with you. So uh, get in touch with uh, someone in your city and uh, we can tee that up. Anyway, today we'll close out the series, Does Christianity Have a PR Problem? by looking at inequality. Um, and I'm going to pray to kick off so uh, you can... Join with me if you're comfortable to do so. Father in heaven, we, uh, we give thanks for uh, the, this time together to spend half an hour just thinking uh, about you and uh, about the big issues in life. And uh, we, we pray that as we open uh, your Bible that we will see, uh, see it afresh uh, and that we can see uh, the heart that you have for the poor. And thank you so much for Jesus and the example that he is. And uh, we pray that as we look at that now, uh, that it will be... Uh, not only an encouragement to us, but it will help, uh, help inform our actions in our life. Uh, so we want to pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Statue of Liberty is one of those um, powerful cultural icons that embodies a, an ethos of inclusion and uh, generosity. Uh, the Lady Liberty poem or um, New Colossus reads, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shores, send these the homeless tempest tossed to me, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. It's a picture of hope for a, a better life, uh, for those who have endured a, a life of hardship, and poverty, violence, struggle maybe. Well, in August last year, uh, well before the, the pandemic hit, uh, Ken Cuccinelli, a member of the White House in charge of citizenship and immigration, raised eyebrows when he brought his own spin to the, the Statue of Liberty poem, uh, which I read a moment ago. When asked if the words etched on the statue are part of the American ethos, he responded, they certainly are. Give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. That was what he said, one of the top officials. And this, of course, is entirely consistent with the modern conservative or, or neoliberal economic policy at times regarding things like social services and austerity and immigration. But it's the sort of thing that it shouldn't sit comfortably with us. It doesn't sit with me uh, comfortably as an individual. And it also doesn't sit quite right with me when some Christians seemingly uh, adopt this conditional attitude towards loving our neighbours, uh, people that don't have much. There seems to be a, a suspicion of what they'll do with taxpayer money. Now, of course, some people do take advantage of social security prog programs. Of course, that happens. They, they have no intention of, of finding work. But the thing is, many don't try and take advantage. They, they just want a better life, like all of us, and, and need some help getting there in hard times. And this tacit feeling that they, they don't deserve it because they're different or they can't be trusted to use it responsibly, I don't think we could call that a Christian attitude in any sense. And I think when we look at the Bible, and Jesus in particular, well, he never adopts this attitude, especially with society's most vulnerable, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. Aren't Christians supposed to care for the poor? Yes, absolutely. And it's awful when some Christians instead show contempt for the poor and the struggling. But having said that, I don't want to imply that, that fixing it is easy or that it's all Christians. 
Um, and in terms of uh, yeah, bigger kind of policy questions, I know that it's complicated with uh, immigration and economic policy, but our default attitude to the poor and the vulnerable ought to be compassion, not indifference, not deference, not cruelty, not contempt. The Bible's pretty clear. And for Christians, we should be advocates and caregivers for, for the poor and the vulnerable, whether that's expecting more from our government or rolling up our sleeves ourselves and, and just getting on with it. I think there's a place for both in the, the Christian worldview. But even more than that, I want to look at the broader vision of the Bible when it comes to inequality. And I want to show that the Bible offers inspiration and wisdom and a framework that's not only pragmatic, but can speak into the, the problems of modern uh, equality in a profound and uh, diagnostic way that gets to the heart of the human condition. And I'll add that it's actually quite overwhelming, the, the sheer volume of Bible verses and passages that speak about this stuff. There, there are so many verses about wealth and poverty and greed, ones I would have loved to go into, but there's just not enough time to go into them all. So I'll, uh, I'll zoom in on a few for today, but it's worth reading for yourself if you get the chance, especially books like uh, Proverbs and the book of James. They're two great ones to start with. But for today, uh, let's start by looking at what Christianity says about wealth and riches. So that's the first thing that we'll talk about here. What does Christianity say about the rich? In the reading earlier, there's a fascinating exchange between Jesus and a rich young man. And it's a very different conversation to the one that Jesus has with uh, the Pharisees and the religious elite of his day. The rich young man comes to him not, not, uh, not seeking to prove his credentials or to challenge Jesus or, or to walk away feeling justified about his life choices. He comes and he kneels down. He kneels, kneels down before Jesus, submitting to his authority and, and showing himself to, to be humble, to be someone that wants to learn, to someone, show himself to be someone that's teachable. He, he even sounds like a very moral and devout person who's kept all the commandments since he was young. But he also knows that he's genuinely lacking something in this life. It's eternal life. That's what he's missing. For all his success and wealth, he, he knows that it's temporary. So he asks Jesus how he can get eternal life. And Jesus responds with love, it says, but also with this colossal challenge for him to give up his wealth, to give it to the poor and to follow him. So he asks him to do the one thing that he just cannot. And so the rich young man goes away sad because of his great wealth. He just couldn't give it up. And I wonder how we'd go in the same situation. It's easy to make wealth and comfort and security the thing that we live for, isn't it? The thing that we build our life around, the, the thing that we even worship, perhaps. And when money is our God, then the rest of things in life quickly fall in line behind. And what a sad thing it is when money becomes more important than your family, than your friends, than your, your fundamental responsibilities, uh, or your faith, if you have faith. Jesus says here that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How often money can take hold of us and just set us on this path of destruction. Jesus says elsewhere that you cannot serve both God and money. You will love one and hate the other. And then, of course, there's the, the famous verse, the love of money is the root of all evil in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Now, it's not saying that money in general is the root of all evil. Money in and of itself is neither intrinsically good or evil, but it's the love of money that Jesus is talking about here. Uh, sorry, that uh, Timothy is talking about here. And as human beings, we're, we're hardwired to worship something. And when people worship money, it can have catastrophic consequences. 
the um, global financial crisis is, of course, the, the most recent example where greed of a few, uh, relatively speaking, had an enormous impact on, on millions around the world. Entire countries went bankrupt, and some haven't even recovered yet after 10 years. And unfortunately, corporate greed continues to be a massive problem. It might not lead to a complete financial collapse every time something happens, but little by little, the, the love of money by those with power, it, it grinds down those who are vulnerable and ramps up the growing inequality gap. Here in Australia, we had the, the Royal Commission into the big four banks, so NAB, Commonwealth Bank, ANZ, and Westpac. And the commission showed all kinds of shocking malpractice and negligence designed to extract as much money as possible from the, the general public. Adele Ferguson, the, um, the journalist that broke the story, which set the Royal Commission in motion, um, she wrote in her book, Banking Bad, um, she wrote this. The Royal Commission exposed rampant greed, systematic gouging of the living and the dead, bribery and corruption in mortgage lending, billions of dollars milk from retirement savings, dud life insurance policies, and financial ad advisors gorging on fat commissions at the expense of their customers. Over the previous four decades, since the deregulation of the financial sector, it had been a free-for-all for bankers. Investors, addicted to high shareholder returns, played their part in a rotten system where banks and financial service companies got rich on the savings of the Australian people. It was only when reputational damage tore through these institutions and share prices fell that the investors started to care about ethics and reputation. How does this sort of thing happen? Well, I want to suggest that it's the love of money that the Bible's warning us about. And that it's becoming increasingly prevalent, divisive and destructive. Kenneth Barnes, in his book, Redeeming Capitalism, talks about how capitalism over the last few decades has become more and more uh, detached and untethered from any sort of altruistic moral system, which is leading to an explosion in inequality and undermining basic trust in, um, in public and private institutions. That's not to say that capitalism in and, in and of itself is bad uh, or evil. It, it, I mean, it's produced a lot of good in the world and raised living standards around the, the world, taken people out of poverty on a massive scale. So there's been good things that have happened from it, for sure, but it's certainly taken a, a turn for the worse in, in many Western countries. And it, it's less a system set up to benefit the masses now and instead is increasingly benefiting the, the rich, the ultra-rich and the, the political class. And Barnes, he, he talks about it being a symptom of postmodernism, where morality is increasingly subjective and pluralistic, and people ultimately decide for themselves what is moral, what is appropriate, what's worth doing. So he calls it postmodern capitalism, but I think he could equally call it nihilistic capitalism, where individuals feel no personal responsibility to their fellow man and make temporal decisions that suit their, their own interests as if nothing matters except the individual and short-term gains. There's no sense of excess or guilt or shame or remorse, just what you can get away with. What started with a, a sense of idealism and cooperation and restraint in free market economics is, has become increasingly unhinged, it seems. We've gone from types like Adam Smith to Milton Freeman to, to Ayn Rand, where the, the invisible hand and self-interest brings out the worst in us rather than competition encouraging higher quality products and service, it leads to uh, instead encouraging cutting corners and um, <clears throat> deceptive and illegal practices, exploitation and predatory behavior dominating the competition. Greed is good, profits over people, the cure can't be worse than the disease, that sort of mentality. A cold and ruthless economic decision will often trump the common good.
And when companies reach the, the too big to fail status, there, there are rarely the, the checks and balances that are needed to, to resist it. There's rarely the public awareness even of what's going on. So it becomes really hard to stop. And the thing is people are rarely held to account for their actions, what they do in public and also what they do in secret. But the thing is, God knows. God knows. And those who have used their wealth and power to exploit others will answer to him in the end. And the thing is, Jesus is skating at this as well, especially when it's accompanied with religious pomp. And he saves perhaps his harshest rebuke of all for the religious elite of his day. Matthew um, 23 is uh, often titled the, the Seven Woes, and much of it is to do with power and greed and status. Uh, let me read a, a little bit of it now. So Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, this is Matthew 23, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make the phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The whole chapter goes on about that sort of stuff. I could easily read it all, but for the sake of time, we'll push on. But what's clear is that Jesus and the whole Bible, they know about the, the trappings and the destructive power of wealth, and they warn us against it. But the thing is, the Bible doesn't just call out the, the rich and the wealthy and the affluent, but the, the Bible looks to the vulnerable and the poor and the needy as well, which is what we're going to look at now. What does Christianity say about the poor? Well, one of the most striking things about Jesus was that he himself lived in relative poverty throughout his public ministry. And I think he showed that he associated with the poor. He lived in very humble circumstances. He was a nomad without a permanent place to call home. There's a verse which says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He wasn't like uh, so many other spiritual gurus at the time or religious leaders who had wealth and material resources to, to give the allure of success and wisdom and credibility. For Jesus, it was his words and his deeds which gave him credibility and authority. And the thing is, you couldn't really separate those two things. The gospel accounts are filled with miracles and signs and for the most part, they're in service of others, especially the poor, especially the vulnerable, especially the marginalised and especially those suffering. Now, acts of compassion, feeding the hungry, healing the, the blind, the sick, the leprous, even reviving those who had recently died. They were not spectacles for the emperors, the kings, the public officials or religious elite, the, the people of influence. When asked by those very same people, those who had power, he refused to give them a sign because he knew their hearts. His acts were not about proving himself, but providing physically for others, as well as to inform his teachings, often serving as metaphors and kind of vivid imagery for, for what the kingdom of God is like. His most famous speech in the, um, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it starts off with a section called the Beatitudes. And it says this, it says, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will seek God. Uh, they will see God, rather. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus associates with, associates with the poor, and he shows compassion for them. And he speaks directly into their situation. The kingdom of heaven is for them, if they will follow him. But the thing is, he also urges his followers to, to show compassion to the poor, to keep doing it. And this comes up all over the Bible. Probably the, the starkest passage about this is um, in James chapter 2. The whole chapter is worth reading, but I'll just zoom in on a few verses. Um, so verse 14, it says in James chapter 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's not enough to have warm feelings or, or good intentions. Caring for the poor requires action. And connecting it with last week's talk, well, justice can be a big part of, the, of what this action looks like. So I think Christians need to be both advocates for, for fairer laws that protect people and provide opportunities for, for basic needs and work and security. That, that's definitely something that should be done. But at the same time, there's a sense of just going and doing the work, being the people, uh, both individually and uh, corporately in our church communities, that help the most vulnerable in our neighbourhoods, in our midst. Sure, some people will exploit generosity and good, uh, goodwill. They'll, they'll exploit these things to kind of game the system. They might even find their, themselves in the White House because of it. But <clears throat> even if people do that, whether it's a, a government social security thing or whether it's just the generosity of Christians, even if people exploit it, it's still worth doing anyway. This shouldn't worry us. Jesus says, if someone asks for your tunic or coat, give them your cloak as well. Go above and beyond. Do it anyway. For Christians, our wealth and our possessions should be held loosely. I mean, everything that we have belongs to God anyway, doesn't it? So let's not cling too tightly to the things that are meaningless in the long run. The other thing that the Bible shows us is that the poor remind us that we're all spiritually destitute. The poor help us to see our spiritual state before God clearly. So returning to Mark 10, the rich man, for all his success and morality, he still lacks something. There's a longing and an emptiness. And these things, like we live in a culture that prizes individualism and self-sufficiency and winning at all costs. And on the flip side, the culture tends to loathe dependency and weakness and need. But the thing is that we are dependent. We're all dependent, utterly dependent. Dependent on circumstances, dependent on upbringing, our skin colour, our education, our relationships, our social structures, our opportunities, order, good luck, goodwill, good looks, expertise, 
being in the right place at the right time, knowing people in high places perhaps, living in prosperous societies with advantageous laws. Sure, some people are more dependent on others to thrive in a competitive and at times ruthless society. And sure, we can, we can be proud of some of the achievements that we have on the way. There's nothing wrong with that. But let's not pretend that our individual success was inevitable or that it was all completely our own hard work that gets us there. There's a lot of good luck that happens along the way. Time and chance happens to us all. And we're all dependent on others in some way. And most of all, we're dependent on God. He gives us life, and breath, mercy to live another day in this crazy and unjust world, whether you acknowledge him or not. And when we see someone in need, someone struggling, someone who doesn't have much, it ought to be a reminder of our own spiritual poverty, our own spiritual state. Because that's what we're like deep down. And in front of the God of the universe, everything will be laid bare. Our weaknesses, our desires, our actions, the things we've done in public and in the shadows. The things we can be proud of, the things that we're perhaps ashamed of. We all need God one way or another. I think that's why Jesus encourages the rich man to, to give what he has to the poor, to see that the things that he has are not the things that he needs. I want to close by sharing a story about one of the, the most moving, uh, moving pieces of music that I've ever heard. It's by the, the minimalist composer Gavin Bryars, and it's called Jesus' Blood Never Failed Me Yet. And it was made when he was helping a friend film a documentary about some of the, the poorest suburbs in London. And they came across some um, drunken homeless people who were rowdily singing all sorts of songs. But um, there was one guy who wasn't drunk and was quietly singing a, a hymn to himself. He was a Christian. The hymn went like this. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. Never failed me yet. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. There's one thing I know for who loves me so. And he was just singing that over and over again. And they caught some of it on camera. And um, Gavin Bryce, the composer, went home and he realised he, um, he could create some sort of piece with it. And before long, it became a, a project for him. So he took it to his studio to, to start composing and writing some material over it. And at one stage, he, he went to, to grab a coffee, not re realising that he'd left the, the loop on in the studio. And when he returned there, um, normally it would be quite lively and boisterous, uh, people that, that worked there in the, the studio. But it was just completely subdued with people quietly sobbing, and listening along to this, this homeless man's song. He finished uh, composing the score behind it and later released it in 1975 uh, on this album called uh, The Sinking of the Titanic. And I, I highly rank, recommend listening to it if you can find it. If, if you're live streaming right now, you, you, you have permission to open another window and just uh, look, at, look at it on YouTube. Um, and if you don't like that one, you can, you can always find the, the Tom Waits version where he just kind of croons over the top as well. Anyway, it's really powerful stuff. And it's powerful because of what the song means to that homeless man. A guy that's been forgotten by society and for the most part left for dead. He's still full of hope, knowing that God hasn't let him down because of Jesus' life-giving sacrifice on the cross. This guy knows that we will have treasure in heaven, as Jesus promises, which won't perish, spoil or fade. Jesus' blood will never fail him and it won't fail you either. And following him from here to eternity, it's, it's the best investment you'll ever make. It'll cost you everything, but it's also free and with guaranteed returns.
So don't walk away from that offer sad because of your great wealth. Whether you're weary from workaholism and success or from uncertainty and hardship, Jesus says to, to come all who are weary and he will give us rest. So I'm going to pray to uh, wrap us up. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we, um, we thank you that you are the God of compassion and generosity and that you've shown it in such a powerful way through Jesus' blood on the cross. Help us to, to cling to that. Help us to, to look at it uh, with fresh eyes every day and help us to be people that don't cling too tightly to our, our material possessions and are able to be generous to others. Thank you that Jesus sets that example uh, and thank you that he associated with the poor in such a powerful and profound way. And thank you that it shows us uh, so much about ourselves. We pray that we'll take that seriously, that we will take that on board and that we will think about the, the shallowness of wealth uh, and the, the, the big hole it often leaves in us anyway. Help, help us to look to you for all these things. We pray all of them, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for, for joining us. Uh, for those who've tuned in just for once or twice or, or the whole series, it's, it's been great. We've looked at politics, climate change, racism, and inequality. Um, feel free to shoot through questions if you have some. I hope it's been stimulating, thought-provoking, challenging at times, but, but also surprising and hopeful. Uh, I think the Bible speaks into these things with profound insight, offers a, a refreshing realism to complex issues and questions of human nature. Uh, and I think, I, I hope this series has shown that you can care deeply about these matters and still be a Christian. And I would argue, in fact, that it gives a, a great basis to care about the world that we live in, being a Christian. Because while the world is suffering, confused, divided, fragmented and vulnerable, and, and sure, Christianity has at times contributed to that, I honestly think that, that Christianity is the world's greatest hope. Uh, particularly when we can look past uh, shameful Christian actions in, in history and instead look at Jesus and the Bible, which we've tried to do over this series. Um, so yeah, it's my prayer that this series has offered uh, a glimpse of what, of what Christianity can be when we look to Jesus and his example. And um, I hope for those who are frustrated at what they see in the church, that, uh, in the church community, that this can be the start of maybe giving it another go. Uh, I'd want to challenge you to do that. Of listening to voices that take the Bible seriously and want to follow it sacrificially and wholeheartedly. Uh, that's it for us in Hobart. Thanks for, for those who have physically been here. We hope you can continue the conversation with us. Join us for uh, another Bible Shots probably next year. Um, but yeah, feel free to check out other resources on our website. Uh, uh, yeah, that I mentioned earlier, uh, the, the cathedral here are running uh, an alpha course on Fridays. Uh, I think it's called Questionable Lunch. So uh, you can do that over the next few weeks if you're wanting to explore some bigger questions. Uh, and then, of course, um, uh, all the staff at City Bible Forum would love to meet up with you for coffee if you have further questions and, and want to read the Bible for yourself. So uh, you can do that by contacting City Bible Forum uh, or just leaving a comment or something and we, we can help uh, point you in the right direction. But I hope that it will be as life-giving for you as it has been for, for so many Christians over the last millennia. Um, and that's what I want to leave with you for this series. But thanks for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, hopefully catch you at the next one. Thanks very much. Thank you.